Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Forsberg muscles his way towards the goal. Scores! That Is that the guy we have on? Yeah, we got Forsberg. The hockey dude? He's got the jersey on and everything. Wow. So, David, I mean, you tell me, right? You grew up in Denver. Yep. Right? How awesome was Peter Forsberg at his peak? Oh, he was one of the best hockey players of all time and a pleasure to watch. So you watch your uncle or? <laughs> I think I, I think technically like his family stayed in Sweden and my family left Sweden. And at that right. point in 1863, we were like cousins. He's your slightly <laughs> much larger six foot four, 240 pound cousin, I guess. Yeah, better um, genetics on his side. <laughs> but maybe not better intelligence. We're going to get into that today. Certainly doesn't know as much about oil and gas. I'm, I'm willing to venture. But no, I mean, you you grew up, I, we're, we're close in age. So that would have been your, the when the avalanche were the real deal, right? I mean, you had Sackick and Forsberg and all those dudes. That must have been awesome to share a name with the Denver legend while you were growing up in Denver. Yeah, it was. You know, I graduated from high school here at Regis Jesuit in 2000. Um, and so it was a great era to be to be here. You know, I, I love Avalanche game. I've got a few daughters and a son. Just so many kids, man. Just so many kids. <laughs> and we, they love it. They love going to hockey games. I think it's their favorite sport to see live. Maybe because it's like they play soccer, so there's some similarities. They get the offsides and some of that. But they always request, they're like, we want to go see the Avalanche. To me, hockey is one of the game, the sports that if you see it in person, it's so much better than – uh, than on TV to a, to a Texan who never sees hockey, right? Never been to many hockey matches. When you watch it on the ice and you actually, it's just not chaos. Like it looks like on TV, there's plays and people are organized and people who are down the ice are doing things set up for something else that you just don't see on TV. That's what's so great about it being in person. Totally. So David, did you, did you grow up going to any of those, um, epic games against the the Red Wings and all that? Were you too busy um, finalizing your business plans 25 years later for your um, energy tech venture startup? Well, yeah, I definitely went to a bunch of games. It's funny you say that. My college roommate called me Alex P. Keaton. So, yeah. But yeah, I used to go to ABS games all the time, actually. I loved going. That's awesome. So, We've got David Forsberg on, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe we should have you know, introduced that earlier. David is somebody who, um, I love this story. So it was super exciting to me. David, I was at Petro DE for a, a, about a year, pretty short period of time. And the company was looking for some investment, right? Maybe either a bridge loan or a, a series B. And David and his group came in. This is, I think, with your, with your past job. And just had some of the best questions that I've seen any investor have. And it occurred to me, it's like, well, first of all, this isn't just a finance dude. He understands the industry, but also he could see right through my bullshit responses anytime <laughs> I had to answer. So I literally lit up like a Christmas tree, despite being, you know, more of a menorah type and, and was, uh, and was super pumped when Dave reached out. He's like, man, let, let's go get some lunch. Let's have a conversation. And we sat down. He's like, this has nothing to do with Petro DE but I have tons of ambition and tons of passion for this industry. And if I take over an energy tech company, would you have interest in running sales? And I'm like, man, 
I am the luckiest guy ever. Unfortunately, David, we're still waiting for you to take over that company. So here we are. Yeah, find me the company in the capital and we'll go do it. <laughs> I might have one for you. <laughs> yeah, should we just end this podcast now? No, so, <laughs> so David, one of the things that has always intrigued, and, and I should I should qualify this. Since then, David and I have become friends. He's he's had a kid. I've got a, a bunch of young children and and really have enjoyed kind of following David's path. In fact, one of the David Ramsden Wood podcasts that I really enjoyed was the one that you came on. And I really listened to that whole session, actually watched that session and thought, man, somebody would have paid good money to see these two dudes talk. The level of expertise that both of you had, the, the direction that you were able to take it. And here we are, the lucky guys that could have both on our podcast over the, the course of a few weeks is cool. I want to talk a little bit about not just your, your upbringing here in Denver, but then give us sort of your story. You, you um, went off to college, right? I believe CU and then got into the trading world, which is a little bit different. Uh, certainly have a great background in energy, but why don't you give us your story, David? Sure. Yeah. I grew up in uh, Colorado for the most part. And then I, after university, I went to uh, Chicago where I worked for a, a well-known investor named Joe Ritchie. And we began developing execution algorithms for institutional order flow. Uh, so when Janus Funds or Fidelity wants to buy a million shares of IBM, they would send it to us and we would go out in the market with an algorithm and fill that order for them. And so we, we built that up over years. And then a couple years into that, uh, we said, hey, we're pretty good at building these algorithms. Let's build some investment algorithms. So four of us went to the other end of the building and, and kind of formed a skunk works and created uh, uh, these investment algorithms that ran up, up to $100 million uh, long short from about 2006 until 2013, at which time uh, I had an opportunity. Uh, I had met a gentleman uh, at when I was interning at the Department of Energy for Secretary Spencer Abraham, and he was a policy advisor, and his family owned uh, or founded, grandfather founded a very large E&P company. And he was taking over his family office. And so I started working for him. And uh, we had an EMP company focused on the Midcon region, as well as royalties and minerals portfolio, and then uh, family office type stuff and real estate and other private investments. And in 2015, we kind of started looking around to decide where we could really add alpha or, or opportunity in the EMP space, given the shift that had occurred into more capital intensive horizontal drilling programs. And we kind of decided that we didn't bring a lot to the table there. And so we decided to liquidate our EMP assets or many of them and, and refocus on a trend of digitization and automation, things that I'd seen in the financial industry and been kind of the tip of the spear uh, back 10 years prior. And we decided there was that opportunity. So we uh, uh, began uh, investing in energy technology companies and, and looking at the industry. And that's kind of how I ended up. And uh, now I'm here with the Ascent Energy Ventures that that is doing the same thing, investing in companies that are leading to a more digital and automated energy industry. So definitely want to dig into that here in a minute. But I'm I'm going through your LinkedIn profile. You know, whenever you're into going to other industries, there's a whole new language. There's a whole word here that I've never heard before. <laughs> so developed and managed automated quantum mental equity strategies. What the heck is quantum mental? Is that a real word? You guys make that up or just slap some things no, together? A, it is a relatively new term. And when I was 
uh, in the uh, quantitative space, you know, it, it, it was only quantitative, but what's happened is, and they're usually oil and oil and water, the quantitative groups and then the fundamental groups, which is uh, different ways of analyzing securities and coming to valuations and conclusions and making investments, have uh, there, there are some, some that have merged and realized that the opportunity is between systematic processes combined with human individual decision making. And that's really what Quantumental is. So it's quantitative and fundamental investments. So where analytics meets experience? Yeah, kind of like that. If you if you look uh, at uh, like algorithms or machine learning and decision making for say chess, uh, the the algorithm crushes a human being. Okay, and always always does, or, or nine out of ten times. And so the way to crush the algorithm is when a human being, even of mediocre skill, combines with algorithms and systems to make better decisions. And, and it's that combination that beats the algorithm and the individual highest skilled player. So that's kind of what it is. That is awesome. So, yes, it's, so I think that's where ch- the chess uh, trash talking comes in, right? So you've got the algorithms, you've got everything going, and then you can get under the other guy's skin and just really drive it home. So that's that's got to be what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big trash talkers on here. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So David, man, I, I love it. Right. I like your background. And then of course we sat down, I'm like, man, this guy, because usually somebody has one of two things. I've sat down with investors, finance guys who say we're interested in getting into energy tech. We understand money. Or you have people like me who are like, I'm really passionate about energy tech. I have no money. So you've been able to, to or at least you're trying to combine both of those things. And I would imagine that is a, a fairly attractive proposition when you're going out on the road or, or, you know, when you were allowed to go out on the road and pitch for Ascent Energy Ventures, do you feel that that story is well received? And, and this is my question. In a low commodity environment like this, how do you present energy technology as the future? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to unpack there. The, the first is, I think if you're going to be in digital tech, you have to speak multiple languages. And, and I think I speak three. The first is investments, and I'm a CFA charter holder, and I have 15 years making investment decision-making, so a lot of at-bats. And then the second is you have to be able to speak kind of technology and and algorithms and systems and those types of uh, processes, which I also speak. And then the third is you have to be able to speak and understand the energy industry, and and that's a unique combination, I think, in particular in this space, but it's it's usually unique uh, in, in other investment worlds as well. So... In terms of uh, how do I articulate this with a a negative commodity price, I I think that's kind of first level thinking in the sense that, oh, it's a negative commodity price, oil's dead, uh, there's no investment opportunity here. And and I think that's wrong. The energy tech investment thesis revolves in part around adoption by the energy industry and a negative commodity price is actually good for adoption up to a certain point. And inversely, a a high commodity price is is bad for adoption. So I think adoption of energy tech is negatively correlated with price. So anything north of say $35 for crude uh, and south of 80 is good for digital technology. Yeah, I think that the downturns, if you kind of go back, I've got enough history to kind of see this, but 
it's in the downturns where you see the fundamental technology shifts. If you look into the 80s, it, that downturn required everybody to get really good at exploration and the technology investment in doing exploration, 3D seismic, the hardware and software and all that. Then you kind of come back to the 98 downturn and the advent of shale drilling. So the tech, all the investment kind of went to, hey, we're going to improve the drill, drilling and completions technologies and get those costs down and really work on that. And I think what's left now as we are coming into this downturn is operational efficiency. And that's where the technology investment, I think at least on upstream oil and gas, that's where I think it's going to wind up going is how do we decrease GNA yep. and still produce the same amount and uh, and have the same number of wells and drill new wells and keep on growing? I don't know. What do you think about that, David? Yeah, I think kind of stress is the mother of innovation. And and in particular in this industry, the, the E and E&P no longer stands for exploration. It stands for efficiencies and economies of scale. And, and I think this system-wide improvement that is offered by digital is, is one way to improve outcomes in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. So now I'm wondering if I've just completely ripped off those numbers that you said, because I sort of give the same gauge. I think that once you get above $80 oil, it's just a mess. Companies are too busy to really think about tech. They'll buy everything but they're really just focused on drilling as many holes in the ground as possible and creating more production and therefore, you know, a potentially higher stock price or a better acquisition cost or whatever it may be. But you're right. We're sort of in this spot right now where I believe, and I've said this on this podcast before, I think this is the sweet spot for energy tech companies that are leveraging new technologies that are able to be strategic and drive down cost. But it is still tricky in this price environment, right? So I could see that being a little bit of a pushback when you go to someone and they say, hey, you know, if it was 60 or 80 or 100, of course, David, here's here's an open checkbook. But right now, nobody's got the open checkbook in this industry. So I'm wondering how you've dealt with some of those, I guess, uh, potential rejections or concerns and still created this story that you have today, which which I think is an awesome story. Give me some insight into that. Well, I think there will always be those who don't adopt and they, they fall to the wayside eventually. I, I've spoken to two EMP companies. They're, they run maybe 100 wells right now, but they're heavily backed and they have spent six to 12 months building out their tech stack. And they're very focused on the technology. And I think these, these types of companies are going to uh, come into the space. They're EMP guys who are tech focused and, and they're going to apply pressure because they're going to be far more efficient in their operations, uh, really focused on the production side instead of the exploration side. And they're going to compound capital faster. They're going to be able to buy assets for pay more and do and have still have higher returns than their competition. And that's just going to force this type of change. There's another trend that you know I want you to comment on. It's pretty well known. Again, I'm going back to the 80s and the the hole that that created in the, what we're calling it the great crew change. I don't know who coined the phrase. I've seen it a bunch of places, but basically we've got in this downturn we're going through right now, we're getting ready to have the 50 somethings and 60 somethings all kind of leave the, the industry. Does that have an impact on what you're thinking about as far as energy tech investment? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a key part to the forces that are forcing this, this industry to change. Yeah, I mean, 
the we talked about this just on the phone yesterday. The challenge that companies have that are tied to drilling and completions, the value of their companies have decreased right now, but they're going to shoot up like rockets when the oil price shoots up. I think finding a way to be hedged, and it's one of the reasons that I love W Energy Software, where I work at today. Shout out Pete and, and Mark and the gang. But what I, I've never been in a situation like this where it's upstream, midstream, as well as downstream and commodity management. You're inherently hedged in a situation where, okay, oil price is down, but there's still uh, takeaway is still necessary. Hedging is a big deal. There's companies out there right now, not everybody on this uh, listening to this podcast is an expert on the oil and gas industry, but there are some companies, publicly traded even, this is available in their 10K, that are getting 60 plus dollars per barrel right now. So despite the price that you're seeing on strip, things are a little bit different for those companies. They can operate at least until those hedges fall off in a slightly different way. But I'm curious, David, does that change your approach to say, I want to focus on upstream or I want to focus on field tech? Or are you looking at the whole value chain as you look for these potential investments? So I think there's short term and long term. And on the short term, I'm, I'm not super excited about any energy technology company whose revenues are highly correlated with drilling. And the reason is, is there just isn't enough activity. And I'm not sure when that kicks up a little bit and, and bridging that gap is difficult for, from a financial perspective. Um, but I do think long-term there are opportunities there. Um, but, uh, the other side is the operational side of tech and there I'm very interested. And when, when you say operational, are you talking primarily in the field or is that back office or some combination of both? Both, both there, there's in the field operations, but then there's also a ton of back office operations like W energy, right? You know, I mean, that, that's a back office, uh, corporate headquarters operational sure. piece that, in any other industry, you know, there, there's already big, uh, plenty of competition in that space. It's, it's, it, you know, that, that, that evolution took place 15 years ago in other industries. We are laggards. That's for yeah. sure. <laughs> so when you're, I mean, I know that you're looking at not just oil and gas kind of technology, but you're also looking at kind of the energy transition a little bit. Mm-hmm. Are you using the same Arguments when you're looking at the energy transition, you know, I don't know if you're talking about investing in wind or solar or things like that, but are they the same arguments that you're looking at or is it, uh, you know, completely different uh, metrics? I think it's it's different. Um, but at a macro level, this is the energy industry is is at a position of change. And it's when change occurs that opportunities are presented. And part of that change is a shift or a growth in the whatever you want to call it. Next gen is how I call it. Renewables, uh, other other uh, providers of energy, and I think there's opportunity in in all of this. Most of the bulk of the opportunity for what I'm looking at is probably in that more traditional energy space um, versus the transition, because there's 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 not as much built out in terms of infrastructure in the next gen space. And that's where the bulk of the dollars are really going. Um, and so anybody who's investing in more asset light software, digital companies are uh, chasing very few deals. And I, I think Ernst and Young came out with a report recently that said the capital in the last five years going to next gen has increased by three, 3000%. And so there's wow. a lot of money chasing very few deals. Yeah. 
No, and I think even on the upstream side, there's just not a ton of money. If, if you go in and say, I want to start an EMP company and I've got this management team, it's just not as attractive or intriguing as it has been in the past. I'm seeing some less traditional approaches. Maybe it's a non-op play or a minerals play, something a little bit outside of the traditional scope, but someone can say, you know, maybe I can fund this for 50 or 60 million as opposed to throwing half a billion, a billion behind you to go and drill a bunch of wells in the Bakken or the, or the Anadarko Basin. But a question that I, I'm curious about, and I want to I transition to politics because I think this is a big deal. Tim just looked at me like, what the hell? This is a big deal in Colorado, right? We're, we're dealing with um, you know, a very intense state, I think, politically. This state used to be kind of red or at least in the middle. Now it's very much blue. And I'm curious a little bit, if Biden wins versus if Trump wins, and, I, and let me preface that with my with my f- opinion on this thing. I think that if Biden wins, and it looks like, at least if you look at the betting sites, he's a slight favorite right now, though don't get put too much in that because Trump was a big underdog right before the election four years ago. I think if Biden happens to win this thing, the first thing he does is shut down drilling on federal lands. And I think in this industry, most of us think that's a bad thing. However, for the price of oil, I do believe that will be somewhat positive. As long as Saudis and OPEC don't flood the market, that could create an opportunity for oil prices to spike, which then gives us a slightly different look into the industry. If Trump continues as president, he's going to allow as much as he possibly can, I think. And as long as prices continue to rise or are able to rise, then that's what he supports. But I'm curious what your view is on that, and does that affect how you go out and raise capital? Um, my view is that I'm, I think it's more of a red herring than anything in the sense that I don't think the presidency is all that is as powerful as people think it is. Um, and so I'm not as concerned about it. But, but I think you're, you're possibly right. I mean, if there's a ban on federal land, uh, I haven't looked at the numbers, but it's a small amount, I presume, uh, in, in the U.S. of production right now and, and future production. So I, I don't know how much it, it influences the price. I think there are other major factors that influence price more. Uh, on, the, um, on the price thing, supply demand, I, I think right now we've seen temporary demand disruption that has slowed down some production levels uh, that need to be maintained. And uh, I, I think you're going to see some sort of increases in in price due to lack of supply in the next 18 to 24 months as a result. So, so independent of the, the election, I, I will say this too, in terms of policy and other things, I think most people make decisions by coming to a conclusion and then finding support for that conclusion. And I think that the oil ban or, or ban on drilling and federal lands is somewhat uh, that way as well. And it speaks to yeah. people instead of it being a reality of anything. It, it, I'm not sure that there, there are plenty of people who said they're going to ban fracking and very p- few people have ever done it. So, Yeah. And I think you go back to the old adage, the best cure for low oil prices is low oil prices. And the best cure <laughs> for high oil prices is high oil prices. I mean, it's going to swing yeah. and, you know, smart people are going to find a way to take advantage of the low prices and decrease production and, and, and so on until, you know, there's an equilibrium. Of course, there never will be. And, and like, unlike any other time in history, with this horizontal drilling and the decline curves that result, the supply can adjust faster than it ever has. And I, I think that's the from a, from an up too much supply to downside. It, it adjusts within two years. 
Um, so I, I think that's something to keep in mind too, where it will be different from the past. Well, I mean, we'll see what happens. I think you mentioned sort of this being a temporary thing and COVID has been a big deal. I think the, the international, uh, the amount of travel, the amount of oil and, and gas consumed is down over 10%. That is not a small number. If you think about what happens globally, we're not driving to work. I've only taken one flight this year since February. I don't know, Tim, have you flown at all this year? Well, last I did fly in January, February, but basically got back here and stayed. I mean, heck, uh, the I haven't worn pants since March. <laughs> I mean, I'm in all shorts and, you know, I'm, my sock usage is down. I mean, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, no, the sock market has, has really taken a hit this year. <laughs> yeah, there we go. There's an opportunity. Short so, socks. <laughs> David, tell me, tell me a little bit about your time in Chicago. A lot of your adult and professional life was spent out there um, versus then you ultimately came back here. My question is, why did you come back here? And tell me some of the things you loved about Chicago when you were there. And let's also start with, did you grit and get an appreciation for Chicago-style pizza? There we go. Yes. <laughs> I've always been a fan, but I cannot get my family into it. They just, no way. It is... Thin crust all the way. The Detroit I, style I like. The I Chicago know. hot dog and the uh, the the dipped beef sandwich. I'm forgetting what it's called. I've, I've become uh, Italian beef. Yeah, yeah, Italian beef. Yeah. Um. So I, I yeah I I moved, I lived in Chicago for a while. We're outside of Chicago technically. Um. But uh, I think I moved back here for the same reason that everybody is moving here from San Francisco, Houston, Chicago. Uh, it's it's just a great place to live with a high quality of life. And that's why it's in part becoming kind of the energy technology capital of the U.S. because people want to live here. And it's easy to recruit tech talent here versus other locations. And then uh, it's it's just a wonderful Houston. place to live. <clears throat> hey, hey, hey. <laughs> you know, no, and in life, you know, it, it ain't a dress rehearsal. So living in a place you enjoy with activities you enjoy. And I like to ski and be out in the wilderness and that kind of thing. And uh, although it's becoming more difficult to get up to the mountains, it's, it still is close proximity relative to a flatlander. Yeah. Tim. I've listen. I have tried many times to talk my family and to move <laughs> it up to the Denver area and invariably I'll get everybody quasi convinced it's okay. And then there'll be some blizzard that shuts down the airport for a little bit, you know, for three hours, but still it's, it made the news. It's okay. That's it. My wife prefers to, as she says, to visit snow, not have it visit me. <laughs> I think yeah, I remember let, you saying that. Let me just say this. For all people who don't live here, I mean, we get blizzards almost every day. The sun rarely shines. Yeah, people awful. are very grumpy. Um, the beer is warm, even yeah. though it's cold out. It's just, it's just not a great place. Yeah, and I've heard the Seattle people say it rains every day. Don't come here. Yeah. <laughs> Although I will tell you this, I went to Portland, Oregon once for a weekend for a, for a bachelor party a few years ago. And I have never seen better weather in August than we were for those four days. I mean, it was 75 degrees, right. sunny. So now I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical, but I'll, I'll back up what David says. It sucks here in Colorado. Don't. Yeah. Clearly, here. clearly it does ski in the ski in the morning and play golf in the afternoon. Yeah. It, it's, it definitely yeah. sucks up there. Come on. You don't want that. Yeah. I want that. All right. Hey, so David, I want to come back to this because, you know, Jeremy and I are both on kind of the energy tech sales side. And, you know, we we talk about that quite a bit with various people. But it struck me as I was researching this. You've got an interesting position where you're selling 
and you're buying. So you're you're giving presentations. You've got to get investors to you know come into your fund, and then you've got to then buy what some guys like us are selling to invest in them. You you've had to have seen some crazy sales presentations and given some crazy ones. What's that been like on being on both sides? Yeah. You know, I'm like, I'm a sales guy to, to investors, obviously. Right. And then I'm, as you said, I'm a buyer of, uh, of securities. I, I think I've, I've definitely screwed up presentations plenty of times and walked out and said, there's no way that guy's ever calling me back. And I've been surprised how often that is wrong. <laughs> and then on the other side, I've walked out and said, man, I, that was a great presentation. And, and then they never call me back. or won't have a conversation again. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm frankly, I'm probably not, I, I don't know that I have any good juicy stories. I, I think there are plenty of energy tech companies or tech companies in general that, that present very well. And there are a handful that uh they're just not organized yet. And, and that sometimes changes over the course of a year as they get feedback from that kind of thing and they become more polished like any salesperson. So I, unfortunately, I don't have much there. So how many, as a, a on the PE side, you're looking to invest in a company, let's, I don't know, XYZ, you know, widget maker. How many presentations are they going to have to give to you before you're convinced? How does that, is it a, you're, 20, 20 meetings to finally make the decision or, you know, how, do, how, how does that work? You know, I think that's a great question and gets to, to something that I, I think philosophically, we invest in uh, kind of lines, trajectory. We don't invest in data points. So we do need multiple meetings, interactions to establish kind of trends and uh, momentum and those types of things. So for me, and I was just writing this down, I, I think it's, it's close to, to four meetings, uh, probably more at a minimum, and it takes time. We're, we're not – some venture funds that are outside of energy, they, they say, oh, we move really fast, and, and that's an advantage and, and maybe their advantage. But, but I think we're, we move kind of slow, and the reasoning for that is, is as I've just alluded to. Yeah, you know, uh, Tim, you want to say something? No, I, I was going to jump in. I was asking, hey, are you uh, looking at anybody right now? Or are you, uh, <laughs> where are you, where are you in the, in the planning stages for your initial investments here? Oh, yeah, we, I, I probably meet with, I don't know, three to four a week right now, which is a, a lighter load because I'm doing other things, but um, uh, in t- for the fund. But uh, no, I, I, I probably filtered through, boy, at least over 200 companies over the last few years. Wow. You know it all. That's a lot of NDAs. Yeah. No, most venture firms won't sign NDAs for, for okay. real good reasons. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. So, you know, I, I want to give you some credit on this because it's it's one of the, the skills I think you have or j- just in general, I think you've, you understand a lot of things really well. You also have noticed where some of your blind spots are. So I give you a ton of credit for always reaching out to your network to find ways to be better and also to continue networking with the people in the space. Because a lot of the people that have the stature or role or opportunity that you have stay a little more under the radar. I think you represent a little bit more of the next generation that's going to be very available uh, for the potential investments and also for their investors. And is that just a product of you and everything that you've seen as you've been along? Or is that a conscious decision to say, Hey, look, I have blind spots. I don't know everything. 
just trying to get a sense of, of what makes you you and, and why you've sort of taken this approach to be there for both sides. Yeah. Uh, so I, I made a ton of investments, as I alluded, uh, alluded to. You know, we're, we're talking hundreds a day for many years and, and made and lost large sums of money in, in single days. And I think that you start to realize and reshape your brain in terms of I don't know very much and I'm going to be wrong a bunch of times. And my job is to minimize that and maximize being right, but uh, uh, and making quality decisions. But it's it's not this egotistical I'm I'm right and I know something. And maybe that just comes with age too. Um, Wisdom. Yeah. The other thing is is that if you think about it, all kinds, a lot of venture capital firms say we only talk to people who have come in through somebody we know, some verified channel, and I, I, that's. That means that you're excluding a whole group of individuals. And I think that you're, as a firm, your investment process needs to be robust enough to be able to filter companies that come in uh, through, through any channel. And if you think about all the great ideas in the world, and then you think about how little network you really have, even if you're a great networker, there are things that, are, that are, exist out there that you never bump into. And if you're not open to interacting with those people, you're going to miss those. And so we're, we're here to gather information, analyze that information, find value to it and signal to it or, or discard it as noise. And so we have to be very open to, to all kinds of ideas and concepts. And we're, we're trying to hit a lot of these companies are trying to hit a future that is five, 10, 15 years out. It's, it's not quite there yet. So yeah. uh, I don't have all the good ideas or know where it's all going to go. I, I, I think being, open to new ideas as part of what we do. So you've talked with upwards of 200 investment opportunities. So potential, uh, I guess, portfolio clients of yours. How many of these are coming to you through a source or are looking for investment or and are the other side is, are you ever proactively going to someone that may not be looking for an investment and saying, hey, we, we think you're a good opportunity. We'd like to invest in you. We see this opportunity. So how do you do you do that? Or, you, or is it really you're looking for people who need investment or want investment? Both. I think it's both. You, you've got to let people know that you're interested in them. Uh, and then they come to you when they decide they need capital. But but the vast majority is people coming to me just just numerically. But if you, there's a book about how Google selects talent, okay, and, and what they realized was proactively going after people yielded better results. And so I, I do wow. think that there's something there uh, to proactively going after companies and saying, listen, we like what you're doing on the surface. If you ever need capital, reach out to us. So, so we, we will do that and do do that. Yeah, I think it just That's makes awesome. sense. You've, you've got a cigar box of investable um, of money, and it's always good to have some available because you never know what's going to walk in. So Flexibility is important, but being proactive, when something comes in, you've got a chance to go after it um, yeah, rather than just waiting. We're, we're a sector-focused expert fund, so there, there also isn't very much capital or, or capital providers in this space, which is a source of, of investment return for us or EDGE. Um, but it also, if, if you look, there's a rice survey of energy tech founders, and the number one requirement or thing that they like in a capital provider is that they have sector expertise or a sector focused investor. And so I think that gives us a leg up, especially against generalist funds. And it's that that lack of capital and, and our expertise really drives a lot of people to us. 
I just have one more question. I know we put you on the spot because this is this is near and dear to Tim and I, and you're you're very smooth at answering all these questions. This is the one thing that I'm curious about. Why do no energy tech companies go public? Sure. It's like that the exit path is either some sort of acquisition or going out of business or a roll up into a PE firm. It just doesn't seem like any of these companies go public. And can you tell me why? Yeah, I think a lot of them don't have the scale to justify going public. So that's one thing. Some just of them niche. Do. Just too niche. Yeah, it's too niche. The, the also a component here is that investors like stories and, and they like things that are uh, either uh, exciting. Uh, they like the exciting side of things. So media and those types of things. Investors in the public market, energy and energy tech is complex. It's complicated. Um, it is boring and not exciting. Yeah. And so it just, it's not as... No, that's a good point. Uh, it's, it's very niche. I think that's the one thing that the biggest thing that you said there is I've been in this for, for a dozen plus years. I still don't understand a lot of the energy tech companies in this space, right? You go to a mixer or a networking event when those were a thing and someone says, yeah, we do this. That helps you this with downhole and blah. And I'm like, I, you lost me, man. I, I'm a, you I'm put a me at a, guy. You put me at a land event. I have no idea what they're talking about, you know? Yep. Right. I do think this though, fellas, I think that there will be a company that is created that rolls up a bunch of these um, and a small pointed solution technology companies and puts together an entire technology stack. And they will be the, call it Halliburton, Schlumberger of, of, oil field services, but they will be digitally focused. And that company is yet to be created and, and eventually will exist and will go public. Or it already exists and they're gearing up. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed a little bit of the time with David Forsberg. 